Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially our first reading from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And as we begin, God sent the prophet Nathan to King David. It wasn't the first time that God had sent Nathan to King David. Certainly wouldn't be the last. But this time God had something uh, very special to say that was far-reaching in its implications. Because you see, if you know anything about King David, probably the number one thing is little shepherd boy with a sling taken down a giant. Follow that up with, well, if you know two things, the second thing is probably he's the king after King Saul. That King Saul had turned away, had left the Lord, and then God brought King David to the throne. And David had been a successful general. He had led the army in battles. He had been the tool through whom God brought peace and stability to this little fledgling nation of Israel, conquering all the other nations around them and driving out or subjugating the nations still within their borders, exactly as God had commanded. And God had commanded that for two reasons. Uh, First of all, to bring his justice and his judgment on those who had been living there, the Canaanites in the land. They had finally reached the full measure of their sin. The cup of God's wrath had been filled up by their sin. But more importantly, secondly, that God had David do that and God blessed David's work in that so that God could protect his little church, so that God could protect his people there, so that the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be established in the land and that all of the promises that God made along the way would be able to come true because if the Israelites had intermarried with everybody else, if they had moved out of the land, they would have dissipated and disappeared as a people and then the Messiah could not have been born. And so what God does is that he progressively narrows down and makes his promises more and more specific. More and more specific, not just Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but Genesis 12, that the descendant from Abraham would be the one through whom all nations of the earth are blessed. And so God used King David to, to do a lot of that preparatory work, Not only did King David conquer all the surrounding lands, all the surrounding um, tribes and territories, he also assembled and wrote a lot of the Old Testament hymnal, the book of Psalms. And then he looked around, and after his, the majority of his career of fighting strife on the outside and rebellion within, he looked around and he said, you know what? God's given me a pretty nice palace. God's given me this beautiful city. And the Ark of the Covenant is still in a tent. The same tent that had been, um, I'm sure, the, the materials replaced and updated over the years, but the same tent that they had been using for nearly 500 years since the wandering in the wilderness with Moses the tent of meeting where God promised to come and meet with his people. And David is basically looking around his house and he's like, it's not just the average house, it's kind of a cut above. It's um, a mansion fit for a king. 
And he looks and says, well, but we're still worshiping in a tent. Not dissimilar to like a big tent you might set up for VBS or something like that. We're still worshiping in a tent. And so David, David, the man after God's own heart, David said to himself, you know what we're going to do? We are going to build a house for God. We're going to build a temple for God, a house that will proclaim God's goodness, proclaim God's glory, where the, the beauty of the structure itself will connote some um, level of reverence and respect, where people from all nations can come and worship the one true God. And Nathan, you know, just kind of going by his pastoral gut, said, sure, do it. I think this is a good idea. What you have in mind, it's good for you to do. It's good to have um, the desire to build a beautiful place for the worship of the true God. And then God sends Nathan back. And Nathan says, time out. You're not going to be the one. And just that thought, that if Nathan had paused right there, had ended things right there, if all God had to say was, well, David, I've given you peace from all your enemies, I brought you to the throne, I have given you a beautiful place to live, you have safety and security and stability in your society, but don't worry, David, I don't want you to build a house. If God had left it at that, how incredibly deflating. Like, what would be wrong with, with wanting to build a house for God? But his answer isn't simply that David wouldn't be the one. His answer is that he was going to do something for David. David says, I want to build a house for you. And God says, uh-uh, that's not what's going to happen here. I am going to build a house for you. God turns it around, flips it around, and says that he would be the one building a house for David. He goes on to say eventually that his son Solomon would build the house. And so David just stockpiled all the materials. David helped to draw up some of the plans, I'm sure. But God's promise to David was that God would build a house. Isn't it kind of interesting how that works? Like here is David who has committed his way to the Lord, um, and we hear about all the, the triumph as well as all of his failures, all of his sin is there written on the pages of Scripture to last for all eternity. And he has in mind a good and godly action to do. And the God of all grace, the God of all love, the God of all good gifts says, David, take a seat and just watch. David, take a seat because something more marvelous than you ever expected is going to happen. That it's not going to be just a house of prayer for all nations, but a house, a dynasty, a king that will be here forever. And you look at this, and the way that God describes it um, in verse 11 and following, when your days are complete and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. And you look at that and you think to yourself, okay, that's, you know, that's kind of Solomon too, but not really. Because David was still alive when he appointed Solomon to the throne. David gave the instructions that Solomon ought to ride through the city on the donkey, um, which was what all the kings in the family line of David did. Sounds familiar. That Solomon was to ride through the city on the king's donkey, 
and he would be acclaimed as the new king. And so the details already aren't matching up. God says, I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you start to get the picture that David was so focused on this one project that he wanted to do, and God just zooms out and says, David, this is just one time, one place in the whole long line of the history of salvation. I will be, he will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he sins, I will discipline him with a rod used by men and with blows of the sons of men. And that's where it kind of falls apart. Thinking, well, Pastor Hagen, if this is talking about Jesus, then why is, why is God saying um, when he sins that I'll discipline him? What in the world is going on? Well, it is talking about Jesus. And again, God does the same thing with you and me as we hear these words as he did with David, his king. He zooms out and says, do you see the full picture? Do you see the full picture? That God counted your sin and mine so thoroughly on his son. That God gathered all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame of yours and mine. And he counted it so thoroughly as his own son's sin. That it's almost like Jesus Christ is sinning himself. I guess that makes sense. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. All of it. Have you ever, like, been so acquainted with your own guilt or shame that it's almost uncomfortable to say that somebody has taken all of it? That maybe you've, you've carried it for a long time. Maybe it's something you've suffered with in secret. Maybe it's something that um, you've, you've never told the whole story to everybody but bits and pieces to anybody. And you've carried it long enough that you're like, okay, I, I'm comfortable with this. I know where I'm at, and I'll just reconcile it in my own heart. But I know that when I walk in here, I just have to say the right words, and I'll stand up and say everything together. But God can't really mean that. That's the idea of, of shame, which is what sin does in the lives of people. And that this Jesus Christ is so thoroughly identified with your sin and mine that God describes it as him doing the sin himself. When he sins, I will discipline him with the rod used by men and with blows by the sons of men. That God has so thoroughly taken away, expunged, blotted out your iniquity that he counted his own righteous son, his holy one, as the one who did the sinning. That there is Jesus who is betraying his neighbor. That there is Jesus who is insulting somebody behind their back but keeping a good face to their front. That there is Jesus with all the thoughts that linger within and all the actions and the, the, the fudging of the taxes and fudging of the numbers on the outside. There is Jesus doing all of it. And God says, do you see this? 
Let's just zoom out that, that our Christmas celebration isn't simply a sentimental remembrance of events past, but an ongoing reality that this Jesus has taken it all. The actual guilt that we have before God, the actual infringement against God's law, as well as we call it, usually referred to as baggage, as the, the shame that we carry as a result of that sin. And that's the promise that God makes to David. And then he grounds it. He grounds it in our reality. He isn't just like, okay, I've got this incredible promise and I'm just going to drop my son into this world and, and it's going to be fantastic and the angels will be singing and you'll just remember this day forever. That he says um, that this one will come from your own house. I will raise up after you your seed who will come from your own body. That this Jesus Christ is a literal, physical descendant of Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rahab, David, Bathsheba, Mary. That this Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, um, gets his humanity, his human nature, his humanness from his mother, and you could say quite literally that he gets his mother's eyes because <laughs> there's no uh, human father involved. That the miracle of Christmas isn't just the fact that this Jesus Christ has taken on our humanity, but that he has willingly also taken on our sin, all of it. And so when God sends the angel Gabriel to, to Mary, and Mary is like, well, this is incredible. How is this going to happen? The power of the Most High will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, for nothing is impossible with God. That if God can do the impossible of joining our human race, that if God can do the impossible, that he still has a human will, human soul, human body, human emotions, that this Jesus Christ is your brother, for all eternity, from the, you know, nine months before Christmas and forever, that the one who took your sin upon him, all of it, all the guilt and all the shame and all the baggage, the one who took that upon himself is the one, yes, who paid the price, is the one who intercedes, who mediates, because he represents both parties, humans and God, because he is both human and divine. God. And so the promise that God makes to David is the promise that is then finally enacted and fulfilled as God um, sends the angel Gabriel to, to Mary. Out of your own family, out of your own household, this one will come. And Jesus, you know, legally, um, Joseph is his guardian, his legal guardian. Joseph is descended from the family line of David, and Mary is also descended from the family line of David. And God says, here, here is the one who will build a house for my name. That David's desire was to build a house for God, and God says, I am going to build a house for you. And look around. <laughs> you see it. I mean, yes, we worship in a, in a beautiful sanctuary, a, a holy place. But look around and you see it, that God has built each of you into a living stone in his house. 
that God in that God collects worshipers together who don't aren't um, bound to one specific place to do all their worshiping, like going up to Jerusalem for the the three times a year that they had to go out for festivals, but that the worshipers of God gather together and worship in spirit and in truth. And it opens the door to this understanding. And this this just kind of came out this last week with uh, one of the books that I'm I'm almost done with. <laughs> that Christianity isn't simply your own relationship with God. Christianity isn't just some personal relationship with Jesus, but it is a group relationship with Jesus. Just as each brick in the building isn't um, there of its own accord and willing to, you know, jump out if it doesn't work for me right now, but that each brick supports the others, that each brick is as strong as the mortar that holds it together. That Christianity, um, biblical Lutheranism, is a group relationship with our Lord. And you see that. Because, because, Jesus, because God didn't say to David that I'm going to build a long train of descendants who will all have this personal relationship with Jesus as long as they sincerely mean it. God said, I will build a house, a people who are built into a holy house to offer sacrifices before God. And so you notice what we do, that we stand and we join together in a confession and we hear the words of absolution, that we gather together not for an individual snack, but as a meal where Jesus gives himself again, where the one who is the literal descendant of David and Mary and everybody else in between is the one who gives you the very body that carried your sins and mine. The very body that was beaten with the rods of man and punished by sinful human beings. You think of the Romans, definitely. And you see the promise for you and for me. That as we come up to and bump up against our Christmas celebrations, especially starting next week, now we pause one final time to say, well, you know, maybe King David wanted to do a very good thing for God. And maybe, you know, that's in your heart as well. I, I see, you know, the regular attendance from, from all of you. I look at the numbers that, um, that our financial secretary gives us, and I see the, the heart and the support that you provide for the ministry here. It's a wonderful thing to do good things for God. But take a seat and stand back because God zooms out and he says, contemplate one more time the great things that God has done for you. Amen. Amen.